Live from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, and coming up, we're talking about Wukma, a comet, and of course, taking listener questions about all things in this amazing universe, because that's what this show is about. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, and you can follow along online or leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com. And in today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about Inference is Destiny. But first, the news. Hey Space Cadets, welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Stony Brook University and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, your agent to the stars. We've got an amazing show for you today where we talk about all the best things in the universe. And you know what? It's a surprisingly short program given the contents that we cover. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern here at Spaceman Studios in New York City. So leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com to get your voice on the air, or you can join the Space Cadets live, tuning in on Twitch and YouTube from around the world, including, but not limited to, Christchurch, New Zealand, Warsaw, Poland, Redmond, Washington, Howell, New Jersey, Kempner, Texas, London, UK, Berwick, PA, that's Pennsylvania, Portsmouth, UK, Ashburton, New Zealand, Groningen, Netherlands, and Washington, D.C., and more. We will take questions. I don't know who the we is. I will take questions that you send there, too. Seriously, folks, I've prepped barely any show material. So get those questions in. Before I start taking calls, I wanted to share some interesting bits of news I caught recently. And hey, everyone, there's a comet That's right, it is a visible comet. This is a very, very rare sight. I mean, there's comets all over the place. Comets themselves aren't the most exciting thing in the universe, but a visible comet. Uh, This one was spotted in late March using the Near-Earth Object Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, also known as NEOWISE. It has the official name of C-2020F3, because that is meaningful to someone, probably an astronomer, but it's just been informally dubbed NEOWISE after the name of the telescope that first spotted it. This spotting happened on March 27th as the comet was on its inward journey to the sun and just beginning to sprout a tail. And then we wondered if NEOWISE was going to survive its close encounter when it came something like 44 million kilometers away from the surface of the sun. That seems like a really big distance, but trust me, 44 million kilometers is not enough kilometers away from the sun. You would be cooked alive at 44 million kilometers. Uh, There have been some recent comets that came close that snuffed out that weren't able to make it past the sun because comets are just snowy dirt balls or dirty snowballs. They're, They're just a bunch of ices and dirts like barely glued together. And when they get close to the sun, they start melting and evaporating and outgassing. And that is about as unpleasant as it sounds. And that's what creates these beautiful tails. That is pieces of the comet streaming away due to the intense heat and radiation from the sun. Sometimes comets just come once in the solar system and they break apart and then that's it. 
but it looks like Neowise did survive its close passage to the sun and is now on its outward trek back to its home somewhere in the Kuiper belt of our solar system out past the orbit of Pluto. And that makes it visible. It is getting closer to the Earth. Uh, right now, you have to get up before dawn and you have to live in the northern hemisphere. Best is the mid-latitudes of the northern hemisphere. If you get up about an hour before dawn and look in that pre-dawn sky, in that eastern sky, you will catch it. I suggest using an app on your smartphone to pinpoint it because it is very, very faint. It will be low on the horizon. After July 12th, it will flip and we will see it in the evening sky, in the western sky, about an hour after dusk. It's supposed to, it gets closer, it's supposed to reach minimum closeness to Earth later July, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be brighter. Because if it runs out of material to make a big long tail, these tails are millions of miles long. If it runs out of material to make a tail, then it's just a like a dumb rock floating through space and we can't see that even if it's right up next to our faces. So it all depends that we expect the comet to get brighter, but we're not exactly confident it will because comets are finicky. There's this wonderful quote from an astronomer at the SETI Institute, uh, Frank Marches. He said, comets are like like cats. They're unpredictable. Also, they don't really care about you and they would eat you if they could. That is true. True science facts about comets. That's the latest and greatest when it comes to space. It's time to answer some questions and have a conversation. We've got questions ready to go. We do have a bunch of voicemails loaded up, but you know what? The space cadets are asking some really, really good questions that I want to jump right into. Uh, we've got Cirilio on YouTube is asking, are there plans for to catch new comets? So originally asked, like, like is it even possible to send a mission to a comet? And the answer is yes. The European Space Agency did it a few years ago with the Rosetta mission, and they targeted the comet 67P Churyumov-Gerasimenko. Will you please give me $5, donate $5 if I pronounce that correctly? Uh, this was the mission that went to the comet, and then there was a little lander, the Philae lander, that attempted to land on the surface of comet there. It didn't quite make it. Uh, there were some technical difficulties with that mission, but Rosetta, if I remember right, Rosetta is still hanging out around that comet, taking data. We've got some amazing pictures. There's this gorgeous shot, this, this gif, this moving image of snowfall on the surface of a comet. It is absolutely mesmerizing. But to answer your question, Cirilio, I don't think that there are any new plans uh, to go comet chasing, either by the Europeans or the Japanese. The Japanese have sent a couple missions to asteroids. These are the uh, Hayabusa missions. And they've done it twice. They're really good at it. Um, I don't think there are plans, more plans to go after comets. Um, moving on, you've got, you guys have got a lot of questions. Let's go right to Cirilio, back to Cirilio, because why not? What exactly is this quintessence I've been hearing about? An alternative theory to explain dark energy. So I'm going right away from comets, going back to the big stuff in the universe. It's funny you ta ask about quintessence. Uh, this is not a plant. This is not 
predetermined. I've actually just recorded a podcast episode, an Ask a Spaceman podcast episode about something called quintessence and fifth forces of nature. And it will release in like a couple months because that's the way production schedules go. Uh, But to answer your question, quintessence is a proposed, a theoretical fifth force of nature that only operates at large scales, that only operates uh, in the realm of dark matter and dark energy. It only talks to them. It doesn't talk to us normal folks. And that's invoked to explain a few curious properties about dark matter and dark energy. Like why is it that the universe has roughly the same amount of dark matter and dark energy? That seems like a massive coincidence. We don't like coincidences, is, 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 is. We prefer something solid. We prefer explanations. So maybe that is. It's purely hypothetical. I worked on it. I worked on it. It was one of the first papers I wrote in graduate school. I had written a paper in undergrad, but it was my first grad school PhD project stuff was investigating the nature of quintessence and its effects on large scale structure. Uh, So if you want to read about it, you can check out some really old papers on it that I wrote that are probably outdated by now. A Thunderduck is asking, could the expansion of the universe stretching out space cause what we experience as time? No. Moving on. Pavel is asking, thoughts on the latest measurements of the expansion rate of the universe? That surprise, surprise, disagree with the previous ones. Guys, there's this whole thing. I know I'm putting my head in my hands right here. I know I'm getting awkwardly close to the microphone and I don't care. There's this whole thing about accurately measuring the expansion rate of the universe. Different methods are giving tiny, very slightly different results, but our uncertainties are small enough that these measurements are disagreeing. Technically, we don't understand what is causing this disagreements. I'm going to say it's methodological error. I think there are mistakes. I think we don't understand our uncertainties as well as we claim to when it comes to some of the measurements. I'm perfectly willing to go on a whole giant Paul Sutter style rant about it. If you'd like, Uh, feel free. Maybe we'll do it after the break. Maybe not. Maybe we'll just move on. Campbell Duncan on Twitch is asking, can auroras be caused by an x-ray flare or is it only from the solar wind? So auroras are when charged particles from the sun encounter the Earth's magnetic field, then flow upwards into the poles and then get dumped down into the atmosphere of the poles, giving us these pretty light shows. When the sun is especially active, when it produces a flare, that flare is going to be in radiation. It's giving off high energy light. And that light is just a bright flash of x-rays. There's no particles associated with that, which is what you need to generate an aurora. Now, often associated with flares are prominences and coronal mass ejections, things that actually eject material away from the surface of the sun. When those hit us, we do get massive aurora light shows. We can get aurora in the mid-latitudes. Even uh, there was a big event a few decades ago where people in Florida were, were reporting to see aurora. It's a pretty spooky sight. I've only seen aurora when I've been to Iceland and up north. Seeing it uh, further south is just absolutely eerie. Unfortunately, we have to take a little break now. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. This show is brought to you by you. Please go to patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can keep this show going, and we'll see you after the break. This week on the Bioneers. Shamanic medicine is based on chemistry as well. What's in the plants? 
and the lichens and the insects. It's also based on magic. We hear from ethnobotanist Mark Plotkin on his work with the people of the Amazon protecting biodiversity and age-old wisdom. This week on Bioneers Radio. Saturday afternoon at 2.30 on WCBE Columbus. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got so many more questions ready to go, so we're just going to jump right in. Greg, hey, Greg, play that tape, would you? Hi, Paul. Steve here from Aberdeen, Scotland. I have a couple of questions regarding the subject of dark energy. As I understand it, the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate, and it is believed that the underlying cause of that acceleration may be dark energy. When I was at high school... I learned that when one observes something accelerating, the cause of that acceleration was described as a force. So why is dark energy called dark energy in preference to dark force? My second question is this. It seems to me that causing the entire universe to expand at ever-increasing speeds would require a lot of work. When energy is expended to perform work, heat is generated. Do we see any evidence of this heat? Thanks, Paul. Oh, fantastic question, Steve, about the expansion of the universe, this thing that we call dark energy, the accelerated expansion of the universe. Uh, Why do we call it dark energy? What's powering it? Like, just where is it coming from? So first off, I'll say that we don't understand the accelerated expansion of the universe. It is something we observe. It is something we see. Uh, We do not have an explanation for it. We give it the name dark energy, but that's about the best we got. Why do we call it dark energy instead of dark force or something? It's because we believe it might be tied to the vacuum energy of space-time itself. We believe it might be tied to the intrinsic energy that you can find in any chunk of vacuum. We think it's something connected to that and that is naturally expressed as an energy rather than something else. Second, where is that energy coming from? Well, general relativity is weird. You might think that, okay, in order to power the expansion of the universe, you have to do work. It's gonna take heat. There's gonna be all like all the rules of thermodynamics apply. All the rules of thermodynamics do apply, but we're in a very, very strange situation when it comes to the whole entire universe. We can apply Einstein's general theory of relativity to tell us what's going on with the expansion. And it turns out there are some some cases, some solutions that don't make a lot of sense naturally. Like if you have a box full of energy and that box is getting bigger, you get more and more energy because the volume of your box is getting bigger and that actually causes the expansion of that box to accelerate, which is exactly what we see with the universe. Where is that energy coming from? It's baked into the universe itself. Where is the energy going? Why isn't there any heat? It's because the expansion of the universe isn't doing work in the thermodynamic sense. It's not like moving a piston inside of a cylinder and and driving an engine. Uh, Just the expansion of the universe is accelerating. So it's tempting to think of the expansion of the universe as a balloon that's getting bigger and something has to be on the inside pushing the edge and stretching it out. But that's not the case with the universe. That is simply not how it works. Remove yourself from that analogy No, it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Yes, it's incredibly hard to wrap your mind around it. 
also too bad. Also, welcome to all of physics. And it, it doesn't, I, I'm, I'm sympathizing. I'm not trying to make fun of you here, Steve, because I, I do sympathize with you. It does not make sense based on the physics you learned in high school or even college. That's because this is physics that's like graduate school physics. This is the more nuanced of physics. This is the secret physics that we don't tell anyone about. Uh, moving back to our space cadets, uh, Kirov over on Twitch is asking about the name of this comet which has some complicated name, like C2020F9, something like that. And why is it shortened named Neowise? Hasn't Neowise discovered so many other objects too? Yes, Neowise, the observatory, has discovered a lot of objects. It also discovered this comet. This comet is only going to hang around for a few weeks, so it just got this cute nickname. In a few weeks from now, we can go back to the normal designation. So it's just a cute, handy nickname. It really beats calling it C2020F9, whatever it is. I mean, we could have called it something else. We could have called it Rebecca if we felt like it, but we didn't. We called it Neowise. Um, moving on, uh, Procyon over on Twitch is asking, the Perseverance launch is now July 30th. Yeah, the Mars 2020 mission, which features the Perseverance rover and the Ingenuity helicopter on Mars. Let me just underline that statement with my voice. It was scheduled to launch on July 22nd. That got bumped to July 30th. Apparently there was a, a sensor light coming on on the oxygen sensor in one of the liquid oxygen tanks as they were fueling. Basically the rocket's check engine light came on. So they had to stop fueling. They had da, 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 and that pushed the launch date back a few days. If they don't hit it, by August 11th, if this Mars mission does not launch by August 11th, then it uh, we're going to have to wait like two years for the orbits to align again. So we're crossing our fingers that we get this launch in its window by August 11th. I will be doing a lot of coverage with the Weather Channel for it, uh, maybe in person, uh, maybe remote. It depends on the COVID-19 situation in Florida and uh, if I'd be allowed to come back home after visiting Florida and also some uh, various other schedule things. So stay tuned. For the 30th, no matter what, I'll be on TV, I'll be talking about it, but it might be from the comfort of my home office, it might be from the sweltering heat of uh, the Florida swamp. <laughs> Chemistry Guy on YouTube is asking, why do some population one stars have higher metallicity than some population two stars which have lower metallicity? So, welcome to astronomy where nothing makes sense, especially the names. There have been multiple generations of stars in our universe. The first stars to come online were almost pure hydrogen and helium. Then they fused heavier elements. They exploded. That gas, those that nebulae, created new stars, which had a higher mixture of heavier elements. Those exploded, died, spread themselves out, reconstituted new stars. As the universe ages, stars get higher and higher, what we call metallicities, which is just the astronomy term for all elements heavier than helium. That's right, astronomers have three elements, hydrogen, helium, and metals. I'm not in charge of names. And also confusingly, we call Population one stars, the old latest generation, population two stars, the middle generation, population three stars, the first generation of stars. Why do we do this? Who cares? So the question is why, if, if population one are supposed to have the 
oh yeah, your question in chemistry. Oh yeah, your chemistry. Why do population one stars have higher metallicity? Population one stars are the higher metallicity stars. They are the most recent stars. They are the most polluted stars. They are the stars with the most number of of heavier elements. So we see that as a general population. Of course, there are going to be exceptions, uh, things that we misclassify, things that we don't fully understand. It's a fuzzy boundary. When do you, when, where's the cutoff between population one and two? Either way, in general, population one stars have more heavy elements in them, and they are a feature of the modern day universe, not the older universe. Woo! Thank you for all those amazing questions. We're almost out of time, but before we go, it's time for the Blue Shift. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio, and this is the Blue Shift, my opportunity to get a little bit closer to you. And today I wanna talk about inference, because wow, if there's a science term that is underlying almost every conversation that societies, people, individuals, communities, nations, the world is talking about, it's inference. You know, should we reopen schools in the fall? Should we keep wearing masks? Should we uh, maintain social distance? How many, you know, you know how long is this going to take? How many people are going to die? You know, like, where is it going to get worse? Where is it going to get better? Etc. 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 These are tough questions. These are tough questions where we don't know the answer. We haven't run the experiment. We don't have the data. We're living in the middle of the pandemic and we're trying to figure out our next steps. And our next steps, when we get recommendations from health officials or health organizations or epidemiologists, they're using a tool called inference. Inference is when you make statements about the future or you try to predict behavior based on two things, based on evidence and based on reasoning. It takes both. So you run the experiment or you live in the situation. We, we have somewhat, they're not controlled experiments, but we have our real world experience with the COVID-19 virus and how it's affecting different communities, different communities' responses over time, and then we get to see what happens. Did that help? Did that hurt? We have our computational model. Like, like we see what is happening. Boom, there's our evidence. It's not great evidence because, you know, the world is a very complicated place and we can't do a lot of controlled experiments. But we also have reasoning. We have mathematical models. We have logic. We have simulations. We have small controlled trials. Through the combination of those, we can develop inference. We can infer the future course of the disease, the impact of reopening schools, who are the at-risk populations, what can they do, all that. It is based on two things. So whenever you hear these statements, whenever you hear predictions or models, yes, they could be wrong. Yes, they probably are wrong but they're coming from two things. They're coming from the evidence that we have on hand already, and they're coming from reasoning. Inference is the backbone of science. Every statement we make in science is based on inference. So if things change, if the answers change, if the inference changes, it's because either the evidence has changed or the reasoning has changed. So just please keep that in mind. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage. 
of Space Radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by you. Please, please go to patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can contribute. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing, Nancy Graziano for wrangling the Space Cadets, and all the fine crew at WCBE Radio 90.5 FM in Columbus for making this show possible. Catch the live stream every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Visit spaceradioshow.com for all the links that you need. And of course... Thanks again, Space Cadets, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing. End of transmission.